You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show in support of European-level actions within the skeptical movement. The ESP is run by individuals representing different skeptical groups from across the continent. This is episode 202. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show is my co-host, Pontus Böckmann. See ya! Hey, sir, hey, sir. How are you, Andras? Oh, I'm very well, thanks. Um, yeah, I had um, quite a lazy couple of days, mm-hmm. which is, uh, I think it's well-deserved after the crazy year I've had. 200 days on the go. Wow. That's what I've had so far. Wow. <laughs> Jesus. Okay. Yeah. How are you? Yeah, I'm fine. Fine. Very well. We're preparing for the big holiday of Christmas, of course. Yes, yes. I've bought all my presents, I've wrapped them, and I'm just waiting for the, well, for the thing to happen, really. (laughs) So So, uh, I think I I ask you that question every year, but so who is it you're waiting in Sweden? Is it Santa or is it the the, the baby Jesus or something? No, no, it's Santa. It's Santa. It's Santa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Christmas Eve is tomorrow. As we record this, Christmas Eve is tomorrow. And yeah. uh, that's when we, that's the big day for us here in Sweden. Christmas Day in many countries is the big day. But yeah. on Christmas Day, we just uh, relax after the big celebrations on Christmas Eve. That's how it works. Yeah, same same for us. Same oh, for okay. us. So the evening of the 24th is the big main event. Yeah, yeah. And uh, then family comes over and we go over to visit uh, family members and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, we just found the only time <laughs> and moment that we can record this. Yes. It's the previous <laughs> the previous morning, early morning. Mm-hmm. I hope uh, it cannot be heard on, on our voices, but uh, we, we, we'll try our best. And unfortunately, Yelena cannot be with us today. Yeah, no. But her schedule is somewhat different from ours, of course, and uh, she's nine hours behind us. So scheduling all three of us to be here together, it's becoming yeah, more it's and always more difficult. A challenge, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's always a challenge, but it just stepped up a level, I think, when uh, <laughs> Yelena moved to the US. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I, I wanted to sa- say something before we move on to the actual show. Our listeners probably remember that on episode 201, I talked about the satirical award Das Goldene Brett, uh, given by the Austrian branch of uh, GWP and uh, a group of skeptics in Vienna, to someone displaying the highest level of stupidity in the German-speaking world. Well, that would have been all good until I tried to track the origins of the name that translates as the golden board. Turns out my speculations were completely off. <laughs> we, we should know as skeptics not to speculate on air without checking what we're say, talking about. Actually, actually, I did check before. It, it ah. was just something that was completely wrong of me to do. Yeah. I tried to link it to a biblical reference. The only thing that I could find with a resemblance to this golden board thing but I couldn't have been more wrong. Actually, I, I think I would deserve to be this week's really wrong with oh, this. Oh, yeah. Okay, good. Because I don't have any other really wrong. So you, you, okay. you're welcome for the title. Congratulations. Okay, thank you very, thank you very much. I wouldn't have thought that I would myself be that, that <laughs> one, but like, I just have to live with it. Anyway, I'd like to thank our listener Mirko, who was kind enough to point this out to us in an email that I'd like to share with our listeners, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. So it goes, 
Hi there.、Uh, yesterday, I listened to the recent episode of your podcast. It's already over 200. Wow, time flies. Congratulations. Keep up the excellent work. I really enjoyed it, as always, but this time I had to write to correct a minor error of yours. Thus, Goldene Brett, the Golden Board Award, does not refer to any biblical quotation, which would be strange for any skeptical award, wouldn't it? The naming is an allusion to a popular German expression, ein Brett vom Kopf haben, which means so much as to be stubborn, have a very limited perspective, be less intelligent. You get the idea. It comes from the ancient and very cruel, by the way, tradition to attach wooden planks between the horns of oxen to be able to attach the harnesses for the traction of carts and ploughs to them. Thus, the oxen could not see much all day except for the wooden plank, hence the saying. And the board is golden just because it is an award. Shiny. It glitters. All the best from Germany, where we prepare ourselves for the next year's great skeptical gathering, the SkepCon, in Berlin, May 21st to 23rd, 2020. Have pleasant holidays and a happy new year. End of、uh, the, the letter here. Well, we did actually find a German webpage that explains proverbs and phrases as well, where they have an entry on this explaining just that. That, however, reminds me that. You know, Pontus, the blinkers that,、mm-hmm. that horses have. I was thinking about that to, as well. Yes. yes have to wear the, to narrow their eyesight is very similar.、Mm. And we do have a saying in Hungary、uh-huh. for stubborn people that they, they wear blinkers. Yeah, I think you can say that in、that's, Sweden as well. Yes. Yeah, so the, that, that's how we say it. We don't have that bored thing. Anyhow, I'd like to thank you again, Mirko, for the correction. And I do apologize for being so sloppy about this. <laughs> But I'd like to encourage everyone who finds something we say a little bit at odds with facts, please let us know so that we can make the correction. We want to be factual, we want to be correct. So if you feel like we've failed at that, please let us know so that we can make it work. Or if you just feel like getting in touch, we always welcome listener feedback. Yeah. And、uh, you can do it on our website, theesp.eu,、uh, where you have a form. You can find us on Twitter, espodcast underscore eu is our Twitter handle. You can find us on、uh, Facebook under the name The European Skeptics Podcast. And、um, you can find us anywhere on the internet if you search The European Skeptics Podcast. But I think we should crack on with the episode. What do you think, Pontus? Absolutely, yes. <laughs> Great. Moving on to the segment that is usually covered by Yelena, but、uh, since she's not here, I will be taking over. I'm very happy because our birthday boy today is none other than Johannes Kepler, who was a German astronomer and mathematician born on the 27th of December 1571. So, When it comes to this week in skepticism, he's our birthday boy.、Um, you, Pontus, you probably know that、uh, I'm an amateur astronomer.、Mm, um, yes. I'm, I've been there for, for more than 20 years. And、uh, so everything that's, that's connected or related to astronomy or space science interests me a lot.、Uh, this is why I'm happy for this occasion. So he was undeniably an important figure in the history of modern science,、uh, Johannes Kepler. He was one of the fathers of the scientific revolution of the 16th and 17th century, right? He's also of interest, however, from a skeptical point of view, due to his involvement with astrology.、Mm-hmm. 
Uh, now we know that astrology was not really distinguished from astronomy back in the day, so he should not be blamed for all that. But the interesting thing is that based on his private letters and some published debates, astrology was more like a job that pays the bills for him mm. rather than something he actually believed to hold water. <laughs> That was especially the case beginning around 1609 when he published his first findings about the laws that govern planetary motion. He was not much of an observer, though, uh, more like an integrator of knowledge and data gathered by his predecessors. And he was absolutely fanatical about mathematics, and he was brilliant in finding patterns in the data. He held a position in the court of uh, Holy Roman Emperor Rudolf II as imperial mathematician, something he inherited from the laborious observer, the Danish Tycho Brahe. I don't know if I pronounce his name well. No, it's about it's, right. Okay. And Brahe had left behind his works as an astronomer with all the data regarding the movements of celestial bodies readily available for Kepler to work with. And work with it, he did indeed. He formulated his ideas into something that is now known as Kepler's Laws of Planetary Motion, something truly remarkable. Uh, he based everything on Copernicus's heliocentric model and worked hard to try and work out why the theory that planets orbit the sun in circles and epicircles cannot explain the observed movement of these planets. You know, those, uh, the epicircles were these circles around the circles. So because of the irregularities, when you compare them to actually circular motion, they wanted to come up with something that, that explains all that, but it didn't work. And he came up with the answer that is remarkably still valid to this day. The planets move around the sun in elliptic orbits, where the sun is in one of the two foci of that ellipsoid. And what's even more remarkable is that even though this theory was formulated based on the observations of Mars, he rightly inferred that other bodies in the solar system have to move in a similar fashion. The second and third laws outline the rules of those movements, and they are now the basis of celestial mechanics, used by those geni geniuses who actually land man-made machines on objects 600 million kilometers away from Earth. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> when, when I think of that, just think of that, it blows my mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I could I could ramble on and on and on about this and his work for ages, but I shan't. <laughs> I just want to say, let's celebrate the birthday of this great man. By the way, when in 2009, the world celebrated the International Year of Astronomy, it was not only because of Galileo's first observations with his telescope 400 years earlier, but also the year Kepler got his book Astronomia Nova published was 1609. So, happy birthday to the memory of Johannes Kepler, one of the greatest scientists ever lived. Mm, very nice. Okay. So, shall we move on to your segment, which mm -hmm. is when you poke the Pope? Yes, let's do that. All right, so only a couple of hours after we recorded last week's Pope the Pope, there was a major announcement from the Vatican, and that was that Francis has abolished the so-called pontifical secret when it comes to sex abuse in the Catholic Church. So we need to talk mm. about that, of course. Yeah. And what the hell is it, the pontifical secret, and what, how big a change is this? 
The Pontifical Secret, also known as the Papal Secrecy, was established in 1974, so it's not something that's very old. And the Secretariat of State, which is the oldest part of the Roman Curia or the Vatican government, issued a text which included 10 different matters that cannot be disclosed without papal permission. So I'm not going to read them because it's sort of legalese and, and rather boring. Instead, we'll just link to the Wikipedia article that describes it pretty well. Of course, these rules do not explicitly say that, uh, quote, we should hide all evidence of sex abuse, end quote. But it says that things that can hurt the church cannot be disclosed without the Pope's consent. And if you do so, it's a grave sin and you will face penalties and perhaps even excommunication. The news now is that Francis has declared that you can no longer use this pontifical secrecy as an excuse not to report abuse to the authorities. And it's no longer allowed as well to impose an obligation of silence on the victims. So that's, that's very good because I think that's held yeah. a lot of the reporting back. Also on the same day, now last week, Francis declared that child porn, the definition of child porn is no longer about people below 14 years of age, but 18 years of age. So that's mm -hmm. also good. So, of course, they have a, a definition of child porn. It's the Vatican, right? Hmm. So that, I, I must say this is good. Uh, the only thing I can say is that Francis has been the bloody Pope for over six years. So you could ask why, what took him so long. He, ha he has the sole power to change this, and he, he could have done that some time ago. Well, I could I could be very soft on this, and but I do think that it's better late than never. Yeah, if it gets actually through, and if it means that it will be observed, yeah, this newly introduced approach. Yeah, yeah let's allow him this one. It's yeah. actually well done, <laughs> well done, Popey. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I don't know if this is an effect of the new rules, but there was a new report of a huge scandal that had just been released by the Catholic order called Legionaries of Christ. There has been rumors and allegations at least since 1997 about this order that was established in 1941 by its founder, a Mexican priest called Martial Maciel. According to this new detailed report, at least 175 minors, most of them boys, have been found to have been abused over the years, whereof 60 by Mathiel himself. Oh. Yeah, this is, this is huge. 32 other priests in the order have been involved in abuse, and according to uh, previously known allegations, Mathiel also had a drug addiction problem and had at least six children with two different women uh, outside of marriage because, of course, he wasn't married. And he also allegedly abused some of his children. So uh, a real scumbag. And uh, as late as in 2002, he categorically denied any of the, these allegations. Of course, yeah. Yeah. In 1999, when Joseph Ratzinger, later to become Benedict XVI, was head of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, either he, Ratzinger, or then Pope John Paul II, decided not to move forward with any direct prosecution, despite all these allegations. Six years later, however, Mathiel was finally required to step down, and he died in 2008, still denying anything uh, or everything. But now, due to this report, we know it was all true. 
And uh, I think perhaps because of the new rules changes, the, the changes to the papal secrecy, we will continue to hear more stories like this. And like you said, it's better late than never. And no, people don't have the excuse anymore to say that they cannot disclose this. They have to tell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what? When you, see, you started talking about the papal secrecy, <laughs> one of the things that came to my mind is that, you know, people, I do have a secret. God probably doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... He definitely doesn't communicate with me directly. So this is just an act, people, that <laughs> that I am the earthly representative of God. Yeah. Mm. This this is the greatest papal secret, I think. <laughs> well, I think we'll have to wait a little bit more for, for that one to come. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, but I wanted to... Uh, is, since it's the end of the year and uh, I don't want to end the poking of the Pope with just talking about uh, terrible stories of abuse, I would like to go into another thing, which is a film review. Speaking <sighs> of Benedict Sixteenth, there was a film coming out, and we talked about this in, in episode 189, that it was coming. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a film about Benedict and Francis. It's a fictional account of a, meet- of a series of meetings between the two popes. And uh, I have now seen the film, and it's uh, <gasps> it's pretty good. Uh, I can um, recommend people to see it, and if you're planning to do that, then you should be warned that what I'm going to say here contains uh, a few spoilers. So you you may want to consider skipping ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so the setting of the movie is mostly before Benedict resigned and Francis was elected as Pope, like six or seven years ago. Francis who had lost the conclave election to Benedict seven years before that, is full of doubt in the movie and wants Benedict to approve his resignation as cardinal. Benedict is played by Anthony Hopkins and Francis by Jonathan Price, And both of them are are excellent, uh, I'd say, in their performances. And it's a very nice feel-good movie, a, a sort of bromance between the two very different old men where one is stuck in the ideas and traditions of the past and the other is convinced that change is necessary. And Francis is very conscious and concerned about that the church is becoming more and more irrelevant because it's reluctant to to evolve with the society. Mm-hmm. Benedict, on the other hand, is very hard on Francis, saying, I think, quote from the movie was, I don't agree with anything you say, end quote. So, so the dialogue is fantastic and the acting is great. There are several moments where they obviously misunderstand each other uh, without the other person knowing it. So they're talking just past each other and it actually becomes rather um, comedic. For instance, at one point, Benedict happens to mention the Beatles and Francis take that as an opportunity to bond a little because he knows a little bit about the Beatles. But then it turns out that Benedict doesn't know anything about the Beatles. So it just falls and it becomes very awkward. <laughs> uh, then, then Francis tries to talk about football because also in real life, Francis is a big football fan. And then again, Benedict has no interest in that whatsoever. So I, I like that part, the di- dialogue between them. <laughs> it becomes uh, rather funny. But after that... I was, must say the film goes a little bit south with uh, Francis taking Benedict's confession about failing to stop a case of uh, sex abuse 
but then, of course, in the end, they find common ground, and Francis wins over Benedict, who realizes that he cannot stop what's coming, and more or less, Benedict, according to the movie, it's implied at least that Benedict appoints Francis as his successor, and of course, we know that's not the way things work. And in the end, they finally bond over pizza and beer watching the World Cup final between Germany and Argentina, Benedict being from Germany, of course, and he gets to win over Francis Argentina. And that part is impossible in itself because that football match didn't take place until a year <laughs> after <laughs> that Francis was elected. So it's not really historically accurate, but it, it it's saved by great acting, let's say so. And mm-hmm. um, so I can enjoy the film like the same way I can enjoy a romantic comedy. Uh, this it's not really a comedy, but it's pretty funny at in places. Yeah, there's one other thing when Francis is newly appointed and tries to order an airline ticket on the phone, uh, and the operator <laughs> hangs up on him because he says it's the Pope, and she thinks it's just a prank call. <sighs> um, so it's not a true account. Obviously not historically correct at all. So if you see it, remember it's pure fiction. But um, as I said, I I, I quite liked it. It, And I I can recommend it. It is uh, available on Netflix if you have access Mm -hmm. to that. And it's rated 7.7 out of 10 on IMDb, which is pretty high. It's probably a little higher than I would give it. Maybe a solid 7 would be fine. But uh, there you go. That's the movie. It's called The Two Popes, the film. I um I have a policy that I don't watch a movie if it's under six. No, that's a good <laughs> On policy. On IMDb. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How, however, I do have to say that occasionally I bump into movies that uh, I find massively overrated. Yeah. Uh, on IMDb. Yeah. And some movies seem underrated as well. So I, I don't know. I, I, I'm completely aware that it's absolutely subjective how people rate a movie on IMDb, but still. Mm. Yeah, thanks for the recommendation, Pontus. Right. And thanks for poking the Pope once again. Mm-hmm. So let's move on to the news, shall we? There is an article in Nature Chemistry that was published in the beginning of November, so it's kind of old news, but it really hit home with me. Mm-hmm. So let me mention it briefly, it's, uh, especially because I think it is cause for concern. Well, two researchers from the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich, Switzerland, published the results of their recent study into Europeans' attitude towards chemicals. They worked with uh, 5,631 respondents, evenly spread out across eight countries. Austria, France, Germany, Italy, Poland, Sweden, Switzerland, and the UK. Mm -hmm. They asked them questions aiming to assess their level of chemophobia. You know, the fear from chemical substances. Yeah, I'm going to overwin my chemophobia by drinking a glass of water right here now. (laughs) If I die, you know what killed me. Oh, water. Okay. If it's uh, purified water, then uh, even people suffering from chemophobia (laughs) should be okay with it. So, yes, they assessed the level of chemophobia in the respondents, and the results are absolutely devastating. 30% of the respondents reported being scared of chemicals. 
when we add the proportion of those who are undecided, whether they are scared or not, it leaves those who are not scared of them at only 29%, (laughs) who (laughs) probably think that chemicals are normal. The proportion of those who do everything they can to avoid contact with chemical substances is 40%. Mm. while 39% reported they wanted to live in a world where chemical substances don't exist. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Good luck with that. (laughs) (laughs) But this all becomes much clearer after reading the results of the second set of questions aiming to assess basic chemistry and toxicology knowledge. (laughs) 82% didn't know that the chemical structure of synthetically produced sodium chloride is exactly the same as that in the salt found naturally in the sea. Mm. 82%. That means only 18% were aware of a fundamental thing about chemistry. (laughs) Yeah. I've had that discussion in schools as well, where people have told me, well, try to say, if you take these atoms and you create a water molecule artificially is there any difference between that water molecule and the molecule that you find in nature and it's very hard to convince people that the synthetically (laughs) produced one is somehow not more dangerous than the natural one even if you explain to them it's exactly the same no nah it's it's man-made so it can't be right yeah the same same thing with uh, vitamin c Mm. Some people think if it's vitamin C extracted from fruit, it's better than the vitamin C produced in a laboratory, which is absolutely bonkers. It's the same thing. Mm. (laughs) How I usually try to explain it is that when I've, um, I don't know, use HPLC or any kind of uh, analytical method to find the contents of it, you would not be able to distinguish between the synthetically Mm. produced and naturally produced vitamin C or any other ascorbic acid. Mm. So it's completely the same. But um, there is another thing, and that is the toxicology-related findings. Even though we know since the time of the Swiss physician Paracelsus, mind you, that's the 16th century, that the dose makes the poison, 76% of the respondents did not agree and thought that being exposed to a toxic synthetic chemical substance is always dangerous, regardless of the level of exposure to it. Mm. So, 15% had no clue what Mm. to think of this. It's ridiculous. The the authors then go on and and start speculating on why this could be the case. They conclude that the the lack of understanding of certain phenomena and processes make people reliant on mental shortcuts to make sense of the world. But but these fail us usually. One example they bring is the natural is better fallacy. That, that we are quite familiar with. And unfortunately, as I explained, we, we have a trust-based approach to understanding the world. So we are accepting the ideas of a celebrity or someone who, who shares our values rather than those of an expert we don't know personally. Mm. And, and you believe you know the celebrity, of course, but you don't of know course. that person either. Yes, but, but, but for some reason you build up that trust toward yeah. a celebrity based on sympathy or I don't know what it is, but still. And what to do about this is is an important question. And we all have our own answers to it, I believe, and uh, and we, we try to tackle it in different ways. 
one thing that I, I'm pretty sure we all agree on is that it has to be tackled because uh, in a world so full of technology and knowledge, we cannot allow that to slip. No. No, you, you have, we have to improve the education so that people realize that an atom yeah. or a molecule is just an atom or a molecule no matter how it was constructed or how it came to be. Yeah. All right. Anyway, I have good news from France. The Ministry of Health. Health. Yes. <laughs> the Ministry of Health has issued new recommendations for HPV vaccinations, and they will now also include boys in the recommended uh, program. At last. Yes. HPV is, of course, a leading cause for cervical cancer, and therefore, over the last decade or so, a little bit more, HPV vaccination for girls have become very common, and it's included in most vaccination programs, at least in here in, in, in Europe. But as we have pointed out before, there are good reasons also to vaccinate boys since, well, two reasons. First, they can also get cancer in the penis or in the throat, but yes. also they can, of course, be part of spreading the virus to their female sex partners or even their male sex partners, of course. So uh, France is now joining the small but growing number of countries to promote also male HPV vaccinations. So well done, France. Mm, yeah, could have been a really right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, could be. <laughs> but I have another one for that. <laughs> oh, okay, good, good. I, I don't think I do have good news, unfortunately, this time. Uh, no, I, I will later on. His Royal Highness, the Prince of Wales... Mm a.k.a. Prince Charles, who is to eventually become the next king of the United Kingdom, of course, if he's still alive and kicking when his mother kicks the bucket. <laughs> and now he has been known to have a, a hot spot for so-called complementary and alternative medicine, or, or scam, as we like to call it, right? Mm. And that is something he, he even had serious clashes over with uh, Professor Edzard Ernst. Mm. More on that later. In June of this year, Charles became the patron of the Faculty of Homeopathy, one of the, the oldest institutes of homeopathy in the world. And, and just recently, he was also announced to have become the patron of the College of Medicine and Integrated Health, an organization that is committed to, quote, taking medicine beyond drugs and procedures. Mm. Hooray! Uh, well, in October, when the College of Medicine had a conference bearing the title Food on prescription, he sent a very enthusiastic video message in which he even stated uh, that, quote, healthy soil and food produced in harmony with nature are important factors in keeping us well, avoiding disease, and indeed in treating disease as well. Wow. Well, food as medicine, right? Yeah, and oh. remind me again, what's his qualifications <laughs> to say all this? <laughs> Good question. Good question. None. <laughs> he has none of those. Okay, but, but apart from the organization being a bit shady, what's the problem? And of course, the, the fact that he doesn't have qualifications. Well, Michael Dixon, the, the chair of the College of Medicine, and the prince have a bit of a history together with the law. I don't know if you remember, or I, I think we've mentioned that on the show some time ago. Charles founded the controversial charity Foundation for Integrated Health in 1993, only to be closed in 2010 amid allegations of fraud and money laundering, even misuse of the charity status. 
Guess what? The medical director of the foundation was the same Dr. Michael Dixon, <laughs> who is now the chair of the College of Medicine. Of course, he did not go to prison, but uh, and neither did Prince Charles, of course. <laughs> but, but the chief executive of the previous foundation did. Wow. And although back then Charles decided to distance himself from his own organization when the shit hit the fan, he could still pull a couple of strings to try and silence critics that um, eventually led to things like the early retirement of Edzard Ernst from the University of Exeter. Yeah. Yeah, something he explains in detail in his book A Scientist in Wonderland. Uh, highly recommend a read. So the prince is at it again, potentially spreading nonsense, as he does, and getting away with it. Mm-hmm. Why I'm not surprised. Yes. (laughs) All right. Let's go to Germany then. Uh, It's a German news item, but I think it's quite relevant internationally as well. The newspaper Süddeutsche Zeitung has an article about the growing problem of doctors who pay companies to go to their online websites and give them fake positive reviews. And uh, they rationalized this by saying that it is to balance occasionally received bad reviews, which can then be very detrimental for an individual doctor. Of course, since the business of medicine is very much based on on necessary trust between the patient and the doctor. Yeah. Well, that seems like a very tenuous excuse for faking good reviews to me. Uh, But I still kind of sort of understand that people who... If you feel negatively about a doctor, you've, you've had a treatment and you're not happy with it, then you're very motivated to go in and give a bad review. Whereas when you have had a very positive experience, you may not go and give a good review because you just expect the, the, the treatment to be good. And you So I can see why there are more negative reviews than maybe fair on the mm-hmm. on a doctor's webpage but still i don't think it's that uh, justifies paying people to go in and create positive fake reviews so that's a bit of a shady business i don't know what you could do about this but uh, oh well i guess you can make it illegal to pay for good reviews but it would be still rather hard to enforce but i guess the only takeaway is that you should look out and uh, never really trust anything you read on the internet especially not (laughs) (laughs) good reviews always uh, make sure that you have other things to go on as well i don't know what to think of this actually Mm. in in my work environment um what i do at the end of every tour we need to have questionnaires filled out by the people traveling with us Mm. And um, it's an interesting thing that, that I've noticed over the years that people are not necessarily... So it depends on their experience, whether they like to point out positive things or more, mostly negative things. Especially if it's, it's an anonymous questionnaire, mm. they, are, oh, they are so ready to criticize everything. Mm-hmm. But interestingly... The person that they have in front of us, uh, in front of them all the time, they are not so ready to criticize. I'm not saying that we are similar because to the doctor, people don't go for experience. They go for help. Mm. 
And if they think that they don't get what they went there for, they might be disappointed. But what I've noticed is that some people, when it comes to to criticizing doctors, they don't know what they're criticizing actually mm. so they, they 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 criticize the system and they criticize the person and the, the terrible part of this is that occasionally they blow the whole thing up so much that they end up hating the whole of medicine yeah as a profession and as a scientific field yeah but still just cheating with paid for reviews it's just not the way to go no about that it. can't be right that can't no be right. <laughs> absolutely not but doctors do a very important job, and especially when they vaccinate kids. <laughs> now, Outbreak News is a website we follow closely, as we'd like to keep you well informed when it comes to the latest developments in the spreading of vaccine-preventable diseases. And we know that humanity has been fighting those diseases for a while, and, and with the surge of anti-vaccination sentiment all across the globe, there are several epidemics occurring in some countries. The worst among those epidemics is that of measles. And on episode 200, we mentioned that in uh, 2018, the global number of deaths related to measles was over 140,000, mm. which is just just mind-blowingly terrible. Yeah, and that was in 2018. It's probably more this year. Yes, yes. Mm. Mm. And, and we occasionally report numbers from the countries that are hit the most looks like in 2019, one of those countries is Turkey, mm. where the number of cases has nearly quadrupled since 2018, reaching 2,719 cases by the end of November, while in 2018, the overall number was 716. Mm. This year, there were 605 newly reported cases in May only, which was the largest number of cases in a month over the year. Now, I have to mention that this data comes from the World Health Organization, where they still have no record of any cases in November and December. Mm, so the number... It's not been reported yet, no. Yes. So well over 3,000 now. Yeah. Duvar English is an English-speaking Turkish website that provides a bit of a historical overview as well. But another one, Bayonet.org, goes into details regarding age ranges and causes of this phenomenon as well. But it's only available in Turkish, this, this letter uh, website. According to them, 1,800 of the above-mentioned cases was among children under the age of five. Mm. And as a context, uh, they specifically mentioned the anti-vaccination sentiment, as a result of which 30,000 parents have refused to vaccinate their kids in the country, out of the belief that vaccinations are harmful and certainly not necessary. Mm. The problem with this, however, is that it's not only them and their children who will suffer the consequences of their stupid actions, mm. or rather, inaction. Mm. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Turkey needs to tackle this <laughs> as soon as possible. Yeah, it's real, really tragic, uh, this anti-vaccination sentiment that we have all over the world. It, it's costing lives every day. And uh, it's not just measles, but measles is the most contagious yeah. disease. So it, it's very, very contagious. So if you don't have vaccinations in place, then uh, yeah, these things happen. Yeah. Speaking of anti-vaxxers... <laughs> Big Pharma is always after your money, right? This is what we hear. And alternative treatments and practitioners of any kind is always much more trustworthy. Well, mm -hmm. that's bullshit, of course. <laughs> 
<laughs> Why do people always assume that the alternative medicine business is free of monetary greed? The latest example of uh, the contrary is the American so-called National Vaccine Information Center, which is not what it says it is. It's an anti-vax organization. It's in fact the oldest anti-vax organization in the US, and it's famous for, for spreading, um, of course, nonsense. They instead promote vitamin C and vitamin D as supplements for a, quote, safer, unquote, alternative to real vaccines. And we all know that that doesn't work at all. Mm. Well, now it turns out that one single person has donated 2.9 million to the National Vaccine Information Center. And guess what? His name is Josef Mercola, maybe familiar to some listeners. Because he has built up an empire called Mercola.com and on that site he is selling vitamin supplements and natural health products. And so he promotes vaccination fear on his website. He pays this anti-vax organization to say that vitamin C and vitamin D is uh, a good alternative to vaccination. And then he just pulls in the money from his business as a result of that. Yeah. So, uh, and people say, beware of big pharma. They are so uh, greedy. Well, there are greed all over the place. And uh, at least big pharma has more rigorous regulations and they are supposed to be at least built on solid science. And if they're not, you can call them out for it. These uh, supplement businesses, the alternative business is much less controlled, but there are still a lot of greedy people there. Yeah. So what, what we need is uh, more regulations and stricter rules when, when it comes to uh, how you can operate. Yeah, and marketing rules as well. You, you, sh- marketing, you yeah. should be very yes. restricted in what you can claim that your supplement do when you sell it. Yeah, that's right. And uh, occasionally we need lawsuits against those who are conducting business in that fashion. But uh, law cases can happen in different fields as well. Mm -hmm. This last story started back in 2015 when the first ever climate liability suit took place in The Hague in the Netherlands. The Dutch government had had plans to cut carbon dioxide emissions by 14 to 17 percent compared to 1990 levels by the year 2020. But a non-profit by the name Urgenda Foundation filed a suit against the government claiming the proposed cuts were unlawful as it is clear that at least 25% should be achieved in order for the government to be able to protect its citizens from the devastating Uh effect of climate change. So this Urgenda or Urgenda Foundation took upon themselves to stand up for the citizens of the Netherlands with regards to climate change. However, as a somewhat weird step, the Dutch government decided to appeal the court ruling and the whole case escalated into the level of Supreme Court of the Netherlands, where a couple of days ago they upheld the original ruling, thus requiring the government to cut emissions by 25% by the year 2020. Wow. How are they going to do that? <laughs> they won't be they able, won't be able to. to do it. <laughs> no. But it's, but at least they know that they're breaking the law now. 
Yeah, yeah. This is this is what what interests me a lot because even though the Dutch leadership is trying to do everything to transition to a cleaner energy energy strategy, experts say it'll achieve a decrease in emissions by twenty percent at maximum mm. by mm. twenty twenty. It is a, a very good result. And what happens after that when they fail to deliver remains to be seen. Uh-huh. But David Boyd, the UN special reporter on uh, human rights called this the most important climate change court decision in the world so far, confirming that human rights are jeopardized by the climate emergency and that wealthy nations are legally obligated to achieve rapid and substantial emission reductions. Hmm. Well, we'll see how that goes, but it's certainly an interesting case and it could be followed by many others it, it has been actually but uh i can't wait to see other countries joining the the, the bandwagon and um, other organizations like urgenda stepping up and filing lawsuits against governments who fail to deliver the climate necessities good interesting yeah. also it, it makes me also happy to find that democracy works sometimes so you can actually sue yeah, the government. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's nice. If they do something wrong, you should be able to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I I totally agree. Yeah. All right. So since um, these have been all the news items we've had for this week, why don't we move on to discussing something that or someone who's been really wrong or right? Yes. Right. So it's the end of the year. And Mm -hmm. I hate to go out on a negative note. There's been many things that have been really wrong in this world uh, this year, but that's not all there is. So I'd like to list a number of uh, randomly selected uh, news items from this year to remind us all that good news often drown in the constant flow of information, but it's still there. And so I have have a list. Uh, It's from all over the world, not just specifically Europe. And I'll just take them in no particular order. It's just random. (laughs) Okay. So the first one is that in July, the Ethiopian government gave all their employees a day off to plant trees. And the result was a record-breaking 350 million new trees that will help stopping erosion and preventing droughts. Wow. That's not something that you read too much about in the papers. (laughs) Another thing is that all Italian children will have climate change and sustainable living on their curriculum next year. That's the first country to implement that. But the same will also be true in Cambodia, of all places, actually. So we will see who will follow the lead. Another thing that happened was that, um, and this I think people have heard about, Scientists released the first quote-unquote picture of a black hole this year. And as a bonus, it highlighted the role of women in science by acknowledging the MIT student Katie Bowman for developing the algorithm that made the whole thing possible. So go science and go women in science. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Speaking yep. speaking of women in science, we finally saw the first all-female spacewalk by uh, Christina Koch and uh, Jessica Meyer. And as a bonus for our Swedish listeners, Jessica Meyer has a Swedish mother. Mm-hmm. So, yay. I did not know that. No. Mm. So, she was born in Westeros, the mother. Westeros is a fairly large city in Sweden, with Swedish 
<laughs> measures. <laughs> Swedish measures. Where, where, whereabouts in Sweden is it? It's, well, I would say right in the middle. That's not accurate, but let's say that. Let's okay, so it's a bit a bit further north from Stockholm? Well, it's not too far from Stockholm, let's put it that way. Yeah, I should have just uh, checked it on, uh, <laughs> on Google Maps. <laughs> yes, me yeah. too, actually, because yeah. it's embarrassing <laughs> if I don't know. Yeah. All right, next item. The Jodrell Bank Observatory in the UK, which was completed in 1957... And it's still the third largest telescope in the world. It gained UNESCO World Heritage status in July this year. It did, for instance, track the first spacecraft to make a soft landing on the moon in 1966, printing the first picture of from the lunar surface. And it is also still in use. Mm. That's good. The population of Western South Atlantic humpback whales. Do you keep track of those, Andras? Uh, no, but I occasionally read articles about them. But <laughs> okay, <laughs> right? No, no. Well, then I can tell you that their number was as low as 440 individuals in 1958. But it was recently estimated to have reached 25,000, which is fantastic. And that maybe is not something that you hear so much about. So it looks like the the ban on whaling seems to be working. Yeah, seems like it. Okay, another item. Northern Ireland. Abortions in Northern Ireland became legal on 21st of October this year. I think we mentioned this. Mm -hmm. And so women do no longer have to travel to the UK to have this necessary medical procedure. So that was upon time, but good news. Then there are some recent aviation news. A milestone in fully electric commercial aircraft development was reached just two weeks ago when a refitted six-passenger DHC-2 de Havilland Beaver seaplane. Do you know exactly how those look, don't you? I do. (laughs) I do. I do, actually. You do? Okay, all right. (laughs) Anyway, this particular one took off from Vancouver and flew for 15 minutes. The plan is now for the local airline called harbor air to electrify its total fleet of more than 40 planes it will take a couple of years to get there but but still maybe we will get to electric commercial aircraft blimey i'm i totally missed that news Mm -hmm. oh my god that's that's brilliant that's brilliant and then uh i have uh traveled on one of those planes of harbor air so a harbor. Oh air really? Oh really? Not an electric one. I gather, Not an electric one, unfortunately. But no, uh, but I, I went on time. a on a sightseeing flight. Okay. Yeah, a, cu- above, a couple more. Uh, Vancouver. In February, a study of UK carnivores uh, showed that badger, otter, pine marten, polecat, stout, and weasel populations have quote unquote markedly improved since the sixties. Basically, and this is basically without human intervention. So I guess sometimes we just get lucky or we have been better in maintaining the environment in general. Yeah. And then one of my favorites, uh, which I know we have talked about, (laughs) France decided to phase out public funding for homeopathy by the end of next year. So that's good. Yay. And the last one in the same category, the Swedish exception for anthroposophical so-called medicine and treatments expired in September. And that led to the closing of the Vidar Clinic, Sweden's only anthroposophical hospital. Good riddance of them. Oh, yeah. (laughs) 
So this was just some uh, randomly picked news items and facts from 2019, just to remind us all that some things, perhaps unnoticed by most of us, still go really right. Oh, yeah. I just wanted to, uh, to, to double check. With regards to electric flights, mm-hmm. did you know that there is a German startup company that is developing an electric uh, five-seater air taxi? Mm-hmm. It's by the, it's it goes by the name Lilium. Okay, and I think I I've think, heard of it. Yes, mm-hmm. and I think their first flight occurred in 2019 as well. Yeah, so we're getting yeah. there. We're yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you very much, Pontus. I think it's a, it's an amazing list, mm-hmm. and uh, it gives you a sense of positivity and and uh, reason to be optimistic about the future yeah. when when you hear things like that. But I think this basically concludes our show. And before we go, I'd like to share a quote with our listeners. And this quote is uh, from Sir Isaac Newton. So if we, we've already mentioned Johannes Kepler, who was basically the person who started uh, the, the scientific revolution. Isaac Newton was a a bit of a latecomer to the party, but <laughs> he did his fair share of, of new things introduced into science. And uh, wow, what, what an era. So did you know that Kepler and Galilei, they knew about each other mm-hmm. and they corresponded. But uh, Newton was born when Galilei died. So yeah. it was the same year. Yeah whatever they came up with and they knew each other about each other's work along came newton and with his discoveries and his laws of uh, physics it all ma- started to make much more sense yeah, yeah right. it's amazing it's amazing okay so <laughs> what did he say <laughs> but he couldn't solve the problems of the whole world by himself and this is the quote To explain all nature is too difficult a task for any one man or even for any one age. Tis much better to do a little with certainty and leave the rest for others that come after you than to explain all things by conjecture without making sure of anything. Good. It it signifies the change that took place actually a little later, I think, in, in his day. If you were a scientist, you could almost master all the disciplines. You, you could be an expert on, any, on everything. But he started to realize, according to this quote, that that would no longer be the case. You, you would have exactly. to specialize in certain areas. And of course, today, you have to very much do that. Uh, yeah, I just, I just hate the fact that the, the era of polymaths is over because you cannot be so well informed about everything. No. But we can try. We can try. We do. (laughs) (laughs) And we try providing the opportunity for that to our listeners on a weekly basis. And we will continue doing that. So I'd like to thank you, Pontus. Thank you. And I'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in. Please keep doing so. And until next week, goodbye. Goodbye. And Happy New Year. And Happy New Year. This is the last show before that. Yeah. Happy holidays. Take care. Bye-bye.
This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe Do <laughs>